In the Ring with Eusebius Makaiser. Welcome to another edition of In the Ring with Eusebius Makaiser. Now, as you know, racism doesn't go out of fashion. It is a massive beast, and we can't in any one episode deal with all the different elements. What I've decided I want to do over the next couple of months is to intersperse the grand narratives around anti-Black racism, white supremacy, and all the minutiae that deal with 20 different themes in one discussion by occasionally giving you small 10, 20 minute nuggets. And they may be longer, but where the idea is to focus on one very specific question. If it takes us five minutes, it takes us five minutes. 20 minutes, 20 minutes, but hopefully not more than 20 minutes. But the idea is to be very focused on one specific element, because sometimes a key part of how racism works, how it operates, the red flags that you must have when you step out into the world can be lost when there are way too many issues on the um, agenda item. And to that end, I'd asked my good friend, Tim Becker Nukatobi, to join me. He's, of course, a well-known South African author, as well as a lawyer, senior counsel, in fact. And there's an element of how racism plays out that him and I spoke about very briefly over the last year or two, and it's been on my mind since then, for him and I to actually simply record our conversation, and hopefully you will enjoy what it is that we've spoken about, notwithstanding the inherent violence of racism. Tim Becker, good morning, and thanks so much for making time. Uh, thank you, Sibias. Thank you for the invitation, and Happy New Year. Okay, we are on the 3rd of February, but... <laughs> You're really cutting it fine. <laughs> My goodness. Woolies is already advertising stuff for Valentine's Day and Easter, and here you are wishing me Happy New Year. <laughs> Even as it may, you and I had a conversation very briefly, and the reason it was brief is that as Black people, we can fill out the detail. There was no need. We could have completed each other's sentence. But I think it's useful to, to, to make that conversation public. You will recall you had said to me when you and I were speaking about the law profession as an example, but it generalizes across the workspace, that when you are a Black person, it's often a case of one opportunity to demonstrate competence. And if you fail at the first hurdle, then you are deemed to no longer be good enough. But if you look at a lot of your colleagues in the legal profession who are household names, Many of them who are white senior counsel, for example, who are genuinely excellent in their early career, they were given the opportunity to make mistakes, to learn from those mistakes, to grow, and eventually to grow into their potential. That's often not the case when it comes to, to Black people. And that's an element of racism that deems a Black person's initial failure as the sum total of what they are capable of. Uh, yeah, no, you're right about that conversation. I, I think I, I recall distinctly. I, I mean, I think the the, the thing is, it's the structure of racism. It's the it's the it's the ways in which uh, we we've inherited it, uh, the ways in which we 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 live it, and mm -hmm. the ways in which we um, experience it. Uh, and so, the professional space is, is probably a good illustration of how sort of racism uh, manifests. Mm -hmm. And here, I mean, we, we we use racism as a, a placeholder for a range of uh, prejudices. Yes. Uh, but, but, but one of it, I mean, a colleague of mine, I think you, it's, and a friend as well, I think he's probably spoken to you about this phrase of his called competence racism. Mm -hmm. uh, and, mm -hmm. but, but 
Yeah, but one of the, uh, actually this phrase is from Luandile, you know, he calls it competence racism. Mm. And the way this idea of competence racism works is, is one of the uh, manifestations, it's this notion uh, that black people are being tried out. Let's see if he can do it. Uh, and it's usually in the form of affirmative action appointments or affirmative action briefs or affirmative action uh, opportunities. Let's mm. try him out. Let's mm. see if he's good enough. Mm. Uh, and of course, when you are being tried out, I think the institutional setup of the trying out, you know, has its own trappings. Uh, and often when you are doing something for the first time, you will fail. Mm. Most of us will fail. But the competence racists will then write you off. We've given you a chance. You haven't demonstrated your competence. And the opportunity is now gone. Mm. And when they are doing it, they are usually alive you know, to the fact that they are giving you a chance. Yeah. And when you compare that to your colleagues, uh, white colleagues, often white men, Mm. They're not being given a chance. You know, they are instinctively trusted. So in other words, they're being entrusted with work, entrusted with opportunities. Mm. So it's not being tried out. So when they fail, is because there are other external factors that are not inherent in their own competence that explain that failure. Mm. And so it's part and parcel of that structure that you know, you are regarded as an outsider and the chances given to you, you squander it and the opportunity is gone. Whereas the, the, the way it's framed for our colleagues is that uh, it's, 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 it, there are other explanations why they, they haven't demonstrated the, the competence on that occasion and that perhaps on appeal, mm. a different outcome would come. Uh, but, See, but that's, you, and that's exactly why I wanted us to stick to just this conversation without feeling pressure to go on to the next agenda item. Because as you describe what is all too familiar, and it will be very familiar to many of our listeners who maybe haven't thought about labeling their experience as competent racism or competency racism, and by giving it a name and hearing a broadcaster, senior journalist in the country, senior lawyer, recounting it, you will also feel as a black person, as a white woman, that your experiences are not singular and that you're not the problem, that there's a systemic problem. Because there are two features that immediately jump out for me as you describe that all too familiar scenario, Tim Baker. The first is, if the white chap coming into the system is being trusted Psychologically, unlike his black counterpart who's being tested, if you're being trusted, it immediately increases the odds that you may well succeed. If you're being tested, it increases the odds that you may capitulate under the nervousness of one strike and you're out. And secondly, if you're being trusted and there's the possibility that failure will be seen as due to externalities, you're more likely to be given second chances, right? Yes, it, it has that the implication it has on you as an individual. And I, I mean, of course, it still happens to me, but less now than it did uh, when I was mm. younger. 
Kenny and, and the younger advocate. Mm. Uh, because there is also the fact of experience and the fact that you've been seen before. Mm. And therefore, it sort of increases the, the scope of trust. But my point is a fundamental one, is what is the psychological understanding of the initial contact, right? Mm. And between testing and trusting at the yeah. initial contact. That's my critique. So when a young black uh, lawyer, and I want to stick to law because th that's the obit you've mm. drawn. Mm. A young black lawyer uh, coming out of a black university, uh, like I did, coming yeah. from UNITRA, that young black lawyer is not trusted by the system, by the institution that controls the economy of the country and controls the flow of work. Yeah. But because there is external pressure, whether it's pressure of law or pressure of politics or pressure of the state, Mm. They are compelled to give them a chance. Mm. But what they do, they regard that as, as giving them a chance in order to test their abilities. Mm. And what happens in the course of that giving a chance to test their abilities is that you are never really let free you know, to mm. play out your talent. Mm. You know? So I'll give you a practical example. You will prepare a draft letter it will be scrutinized five times before it can be trusted to be released to the public. Mm. One could say that is a function of experience and nothing more. But usually that language of experience is a mask for something deeper. And that's my issue. Yeah. But on the other hand, a white man with um, a, a Hilton background a UCT background mm -hmm. is automatically believed to be competent. And there is no uh, eye that's constantly gazing over their abilities. Now, the impact that it has on the black man or the black fellow or the black woman mm. is debilitating. It is utterly soul-destroying. Yeah, And so you will go to a firm and what you will find is that, yes, we have black children here or black graduates that we have employed and we have white graduates that we have employed. The white graduates seem to succeed, right? They make partnership mm. within the seven, eight years. Mm. And there is a revolving door uh, for black women. And then you and I then as partners sit around the table and we say, we just don't understand why they leave. <laughs> <laughs> or even more disingenuous, we have enabled them to grow a little bit and they're so scarce in the market, they have the freedom to play us off each other. It's not our fault. Yes, uh, there is a demand in the market for people who look like them. And what can we do? <laughs> so, so, yeah, anything so, other than self-examining how they are implicated in their own agency in propping up a system that leads to exactly the situation where they now regard themselves as victims. I'm trying very hard to contain the conversation just around this one concept because the the name for this episode has already written itself, you know, competency racism. 
a new language can often be an aha moment for people. So I'm very excited that we've identified it. But of course, there are other familiar concepts that are adjacent to what we're talking about. I think they would be good for us to return to in the future with other small nuggets. But just two that I want to end on so that we can keep the idea of competency competency racism as a sort of weekend concept for, for folks to mull over who listen to this podcast. I'm thinking as you are speaking about the presumption of competence versus the presumption of incompetence, because that's what it amounts to, isn't it? That the white chap being given that chance is presumed competent until he proves otherwise. The UNITRA graduate is assumed to be incompetent. And worse, now that Fort Hare has this apparent scandal, you know, now it's like, oh my God, this just justifies why I should be very careful hiring someone from that institution. So there's a presumption of incompetence. What does that do to a young lawyer, Tembeka, when you 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 walk into an unfamiliar space, literally and figuratively, professionally, in the middle of Santon? Maybe you've just finished pupillage or one of the big law firms as an attorney, where you are a candidate. You're already having to quietly deal with a social milieu that can be a source of psychological pressure, and that's quite apart from having to deal with the presumption of incompetence. That means that you are massively behind on day one with the other new folks that have come into the system, racialized white via Hilton and UCT. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's, it's soul-destroying uh, for an, an, a number of reasons. And in some respects, I mean, I, I do reflect on my own experiences. Um, uh, uh, because and this is a point that you know Kate O'Regan once made when we had a, a transformation in Daba at, at Bowman Gilfillan many years ago. Mm. In other words, what are we looking for when we hire? You know, mm. and she says we we tend to look for people who look like us mm. uh, and people with the same sort of cultural experiences uh, mm. uh, as us. Mm. And the problem with at the time, I'm not sure what the experience is now with. The large law Sorry, firms. can I just say parenthetically how the system tries to rationalize its its absolute um, bullshit? They will say we are looking for a fit. Yes, precisely. And never and interrogate that, what the hell that means. Yeah, and that fit embeds biases hmm. um, in, in, in internally. And so, what so did Kate say? And did they listen to her? <laughs> I, I will check what the actual stats is, but what she was saying is that if you truly want to change the culture of the place, you must go to Forte and Unitra and uh, and not at Vitz and Stellenbosch at UCT. Yeah. And that is the way you can create a culture that's truly accommodative, a culture that's truly diverse, a culture that's truly embracing of the ethos of the new South Africa. Mm. And the part of the problem with it, with this, which which is why I obsess about this topic, part of the problem with it is that we are unable, because of these presumed biases, unable to truly test talent, mm. native talent, because the talent is hidden and, and suppressed by these cultures of privilege or cultures of underprivilege. Mm. And you, you make a good point about this presumption of, I think that the presumption we can assume exists is the presumption of competence. Mm. 
Mm. They will deny the presumption of incompetence. Yes. But I think even if they deny that, I think there is still a skepticism of competence. They will deny it because that's a feature of, as Robin D'Angelo calls it, nice racism. Because the kind yes. of people we're talking about are white progressives. Yes. Yes. And if they have to accede to what we are talking about, it would be admitting inadvertently to be in a continuum with Afri Forum. And they wouldn't want to do that. So, of course, they will deny it. Yes, yes. And so, but the counter to it is, is that they are still skeptical. Mm. They still want to test. They want to try you out. Mm. And, so the, and so the effect of it is the revolving door. You either exit the system, mm. but if you stay within the system, your true talent is never displayed. Yeah. Tembeka, I want to finish with two big questions, but let's keep them small and we'll see the feedback. Maybe we can blow up these as self-standing topics. When we talk about trusting versus testing, what also comes to mind for me is why on earth should the graduate, both from UNITA and from UCT or from Rhodes, even if you went to that wonderful law clinic on New Street, be a finished product on day one when you started work. It should be a combination of testing plus a developmental pathway. So at any rate, it shouldn't be about testing. It should be about spotting capability and then providing the scaffolding. Let me let me pause there before I ask the last question. What do you, what do you, what do you, what do you make of that? Because the very language of testing um, is is for me harsh, and I'm not asking for standards to be lowered, which is the other way in which they will misdirect what we are saying. Um, but the reality is that with appropriate scaffolding, you will be able to reach your potentiality. Why should you be tested for job readiness on day one? Yes, and there's no reason why you, sh you should be. My, my own belief is that you can apply affirmative action at any stage of a professional development of a person. At any stage, you can apply affirmative. I'm a strong believer in affirmative action. I believe mm. most of the things I've been able to achieve have in part been through affirmative action. Of course, you have to combine it with native talent and hard work, mm. but affirmative action is key. And all of us, most of us, can benefit with affirmative action, even if it's understanding the wider social and uh, economic context in which you operate. Mm. That is absolutely essential because the presumption of competency that's founded upon schools and universities is precisely what liberals deny, because liberals deny the generalization. Liberals say we must look at the individual, and yet the system that they purport to apply generalizes Absolutely. from the past. Absolutely. Final point, I, you, it, it's really interesting that Kate talks about the beginning of the pipeline. Where do you go and source talent? And if you're serious about changing organizational culture, are you going about it the appropriate way beyond sloganeering that you wish to do so? The other end of the spectrum is when it comes to the point where you decide who becomes partner, who's ready to be made senior counsel, who should be recommended, et cetera, for a key position on any one of these structures either at your group or in terms of the industry bodies. It's really interesting to me how the evaluative criteria can also be applied differently depending on what assumptions are made about you. 
I sometimes I have to confess, and I hope I'm not going to come across as a <laughs> as a snob, as a trained debater. <laughs> I sometimes listen to excellent white male senior counsel, even that I have genuine respect for as lawyers. And I think to myself, certain elements of your performance, especially in terms of court appearance and your oral arguments, are criminally weak when I put it next to the word cloud association with your name. And yet when a, I was going to use a controversial example, but I'll keep him out. When a certain black counsel who's also senior dares to mangle his English, for example, it's it's suddenly taken as an indication that sometimes titles like senior counsel are too easily awarded. So it's really interesting to me that we not only test black candidates as opposed to trusting them at the beginning of their careers, but throughout your career, the very standards that so many white progressives even think that some of us are demanding to be lowered, they actually often lower that standard when they evaluate white lawyers who may be excellent on some elements of the test for promotion. So they have spikes, but they also have significant weaknesses and those weaknesses are appropriately juxtaposed with the strengths, but that kind of nuance is often not applied to black talent. Yeah, I mean, there are two big points you make here, Eusebius, and both of them are excellent. Uh, the one is problematizing language mm. uh, as, as a standard of measuring intelligence. And the problem is that my profession, law, is notorious for that. Mm. And that's because language is the vehicle through which we demonstrate ability. Mm. And, and the dominant language, okay, it used to be Africans and English, but since 1994, the dominant language has been English. And Latin. So, uh, well, Latin before <laughs> Africa, yes, I agree. But, but it's always been a language-based sure. uh, problem. Mm. And so when we mangle language, we are presumed to mangle the law because it is a profession that is based on language. Mm. And I usually say to, to youngsters that bother to listen to what I have to say, <laughs> there are three things lawyers do. They, they speak, they write, and they read. Mm. And you've got to know how to do those three things mm. in combination. Sometimes you will be a good writer, sometimes you'll be a good speaker, sometimes mm. you'll be a good reader. Mm. But you've got to know them in combination. So this is the problem with law in particular, is that because it is a language-based uh, profession, it is very easy to superimpose a standard of competence because of the lack of grasp in language. And hence, if lawyers want to be successful, they have to focus on language. Mm. The problem is English and not language. Yeah. And the problem there is a structural one that English has over time assumed the preeminent status, but it shouldn't be. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's absolutely right. But the other point that perhaps I smuggled in there is part of how racism operates, which is the flip side of the presumptions of competency versus incompetency distinction we puzzled through at the beginning of our conversation. And so maybe this is a good note to end on, is that the flip side of that is benefit of the doubt. Some yes. people are, are given benefit of the doubt, others are not. And that itself is underpinned by structural racism, who is entitled to the grace of benefit of the doubt. 
No, that is an excellent point because a trusted advocate who makes an error in argument, that error is not immediately apparent. Uh, people think he probably is right, and then it's only on second reflection where they think, no, the argument is actually structurally flawed. Mm. But an advocate who is being tried out and tested makes a correct point. The immediate presumption is it's probably wrong. Mm. And then only on second reflection do we then do we then <laughs> say, okay, he was right after all. Yeah. But we are terribly sorry. But yeah. a lot of that is then underpinned by our own racial biases. Hmm. Oh, that's absolutely, absolutely right. What do you say to especially young black lawyers who listen to the way in which we have unpacked competency racism? Should that make them cynical, disheartened, or what posture should they adopt? I'll give you one final minute. No, I think they must be aware. I think the worst thing that you can do to a, a young lawyer is to enable or allow them to practice law in a a veil of ignorance. They have to be aware of the structure of the system. And then they can make their choices, but being fully aware of how the system uh, operates. Because it's the lack, it's the it's the knowledge that really empowers us uh, to make these choices. So I think the key to this discussion is unpacking this and calling it, giving it a name. As a bonus question, I've I got to smuggle this in here. The one thing white people are very good at in all parts of the workplace is helping each other out. If you are this profoundly aware of it, and I've had this conversation with another um, advocate and, and mutual friend of ours, um, how good are black lawyers with experience, you, Luandile, even younger lawyers who are now already senior because they've done so well so quickly, Camille, Tadiso, many others. Um, do you reach out to newbies who come into the system? Because someone can be can now have the language, as you say, but they they will still be disheartened unless they can reach out to a group of folks who've come before them that are available. Now, obviously, you can't do that 24-7. You have to get on with your practice. But you know what I mean. There, there are ways in which white boys take out other white boys for dinner for a glass on a friday afternoon and that kind of helps no no i i agree with you i i, I think we we are not doing enough of that I, I'm, I'm very self-aware of that and, and self-critical uh, of that I, I don't think we're doing enough of it i think we try through institutions i'm the chairperson of the advocates for for transformation and sort of build institutional networks through that way but but I think your your point is a good one that we we are not doing enough of it. Uh, we should be doing more. I, I'm personally I don't think personally I'm doing enough of that. Mm. Yeah, and that generalizes for all of us in, in professions. We've got to do that. Yeah. That's really really important. And in a way, we are reverse engineering some of the success at a group level of white men steal their formula, but hopefully don't perpetuate the exclusion, um, but fast forward our own group level success besides our individual career mapping. Tembeka, as always, great value that you add. And thank you so much for always being generous and available, um, including for shout outs. <laughs> thank you. I, I just found that piece most hilarious. I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> so, so. <laughs>
<laughs> Thanks so much, my friend. Have a lovely time. We'll chat again. Ciao, ciao. All right. <laughs> yes.